Let's get cracking, everyone. Anyone else got like in the morning to look slightly croaky voice? So, we're going to, um, I think we'll just, uh, we're going to jump straight into some Bible time. And so, as you know, Bill's giving us some, uh, look, taking us into Ezekiel 37, and two-parter today and tomorrow morning. So, um, what a great way to start the day. Thanks, Chris. Sure. Um, we can pray. Can I pray? Do you want to pray? Okay. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I've got the energy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, Holy Spirit, thank you that, that, um, that you are here with us. Really special to be together. And uh, we love uh, your word. We love the, the truth that you, you bring and that we want you to agree to it being woven through the fabric of our lives and we want to live in you and you to live in us and we pray you strengthen that union today uh, as Bill teaches us. Amen. 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 Thank you. Um, Emma suggested that uh, given it's sort of 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning it might be good to start with some exercises. <laughs> <laughs> But frankly, <laughs> but, <coughs> but I, I haven't got the energy, <laughs> so we won't. We'll, we'll dive straight in. Uh, this is this is this is the passage. Um, you, you might have heard it before. The hand of the Lord was on me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put my breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. And say to it, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up out, uh, bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it declares the Lord. 
So, that's, uh, that's the passage um, which Chris and Alice have chosen as the theme for the whole weekend. So they've asked me to kind of explain a little bit about what's going on in it. Um, where's my clicker gone? There's a problem. And the problem is, this is an, one of the Old Testament prophetic books. You know, there are 16 books in the Old Testament who are the prophets. There are four major prophets and 12 minor ones. Uh, and that's about the size of them, not their importance. Um, the trouble is, these are the most difficult texts, uh, generally, to interpret well. Um, and so they, uh, Chris and Alice have asked me to try and explain what's going on here. You know, who, who is this written for? Who is it written to? Who is it written about? And how does it apply to us? Um, everyone struggles with the Old Testament prophets. Here is one of my heroes, Martin Luther. <laughs> He's a very plain-speaking German. They, the prophets, have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. Slightly different from Calvin, but anyway. Um, but I agree, they are. They're very difficult to understand. For us to start, they're strange and unpredictable. They do really weird things. But also, they, they seem to change their message. You know, they, they turn on a sixpence. One moment, it's curses and judgment and warnings. And then the next, it's all encouragement and blessing and comfort. So they're quite hard to make sense of. Um, and um, there's another particular problem with the Old Testament prophets, which is Christians. And the way Christians open the Bible and say, it's in the Bible, it's encouraging, so it must be for me, I'm going to claim it as a promise. For example, and Emma hates it when I point this out, but Jeremiah 29 verse 11, I'm sure you have been sent it as an encouraging, you can probably, we can probably recite it together for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you, prosper you, prosper you and not harm you, give you a hope and a future. Exactly. So some people here can quote it. But Emma hates it when I point out what Jeremiah says six verses later. Okay? So, this is what the Lord Almighty says. <laughs> I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. Now, how come we never claim that as a <laughs> Imagine if your um, if your godmother Val, you know, on the eve of your GCSE exam, sends you a text saying Jeremiah twenty nine, and instead of eleven, she accidentally types in seventeen. <laughs> but why do we claim the one and not the other? They're both in the Bible. They're both about Israel. They're both about Israel. So. How do we know that the Valley of Dry Bones is an encouraging word for us, is the question. So, um, short answer, yes, it is about us. It does apply. Uh, but what I want to do this morning is, morning is explain why. Um, why does it apply to us? What does it mean? And then tomorrow, um, 
what we're going to do is, is look at the passage and just draw certain things out of it and apply them to us and say, how does this speak to us? So the two, morning, the two sessions are going to be very different. This morning is kind of teaching, it's biblical studies, it's broad. We're going to sweep across the whole Bible. Um, we're, we are going to go from the Torah to Revelation. Um, it's going to be intense. I, I've had a chat with Chris and say, if we go slightly over the half an hour, is that okay? And he said yes, but I know I'm going to be fighting with the aroma of bacon. Um, <laughs> if you decide you've had enough and you, you bail out, I quite understand. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll just send a, a Jeremiah-like cursor. <laughs> so the two sessions are going to be quite different. Are you ready? Brace yourselves. Here we go. Um, so t- to read any text well, any biblical text well, uh, part of it, a big part of it, is about understanding the context. Who is speaking? Who's he speaking to? What's their situation? What would they have heard um, when, when they heard that original message? What would it have meant to them? That's a, that's the, a fundamental key to interpreting the Bible well. And we're going to be doing that. But there's another key to the Old Testament prophets. And that's to understand this. Um, Their message is strange, but it's not original. Their message is completely unoriginal. They are simply repeating what God has already said. They're reminding the people of Israel what God has already, in fact, what God said hundreds of years before, that the people of Israel had forgotten. And so their message isn't one that they've just cooked up themselves. Now, they find really wild and wacky ways of communicating it, that the method is, is very, very original. I mean, Ezekiel, of all of them, is quite, quite bizarre. But the content of the message is the same message that God has been speaking uh, to his people since they entered the land. And so to understand what they're saying and why they're saying it, actually we need to start somewhere different from Ezekiel. We need to go back to God's original plan for his people. Um, Here's a tip, pro tip, for um, understanding the Old Testament, and understanding how the Old Testament all fits together, and that is... Study the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I, I accept that. That's very encouraging. Uh, Deuteronomy is a fabulous... It's, it's like the, the skeleton of the Old Testament, um, where God lays out his plan, lays out the template for what the people of Israel should be like. Um, and it's amazing how the, the themes, the ideas, even the language that's, that's in Deuteronomy is like a, a script that, gets, that keeps on being referred to and being repeated by all sorts of people. If you read the, a lot of the history books, certainly up to Two Kings, it's like they're written by, this, by people who've been studying Deuteronomy. Um, and the Old Testament prophets as well. It's, it's, all, it's all originally in Deuteronomy. So, what is Deuteronomy? Well, the back, a quick reminder. What is the context for Deuteronomy? Moses has been leading the grumbling people of Israel around the wilderness for 40 years. And the original generation has now died out. 
And that means they are about to move into the land. And so the, the land that they've been promised from the start. So they camped next to the Jordan River. They're about to cross over. Moses won't be going with them. Moses is 120. He's about to die. So these are Moses' final words. And Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses to the people, explaining who they are and what they're for. Um, and he's laying out, this is, it's like a handbook for how to be the people of God in the land. And so um, he, and the structure, it's structured just like an ancient Near Eastern vassal treaty, a covenant. Okay, it's, scholars noticed about 50 years ago the amazing similarities between the structure of, Deut- of Moses' speeches in Deuteronomy and ancient Near Eastern treaties, vassal treaties, covenants, where a, a, a big ruler would give rules to a junior ruler if they wanted to be under their protection. And so the overall message is, Israel, I'm giving you this land, but you're not your own. You're, you're not independent. You're not free to do anything you like in it. I am your ruler, and I want you to live a certain way. And he summarizes how he wants them to live in this thing, in this covenant, this agreement, this treaty between them. Excuse me. And the central command, it's the, the, the spine, if you like, the, of, of the covenant, the thing that everything else hangs on, is the one big commandment that's the foundation for everything else, which is love. God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your strength. Everything else, all the Ten Commandments and all the the sub-commandments, all the laws in the Torah, they are all an unpacking of what it means to love the Lord your God. They, they, They describe what it looks like to love the Lord your God. Okay, so that's the central thing. And so the central thing is love the Lord your God and be faithful to him alone. And it gets worked out then in two dimensions, a vertical dimension. Loving the Lord your God looks like worshipping God rightly. And so a lot of the laws are concerned with right worship. And then there's the horizontal dimension. Uh, relate to your, your neighbours, your fellow Israelites in the right way. Love the people, love your neighbour. Um, there's the vertical and the horizontal. Um, that is, that, that's in a nutshell the, all the commands in the book of Deuteronomy. But, but like other ancient Near Eastern treaties, there are conditions. Um, there are rewards and punishments. Rewards for sticking to the covenant, for loving God, for being faithful and expressing that faithfulness through covenant obedience. If you do that, you'll be blessed. But there are also curses. So uh, chapters 27 and 28 in Deuteronomy, they summarize the blessings and the curses. The key thing to notice is that those blessings and curses are largely about (coughs) the land. The land. If you love God, if you're faithful to him, if you keep the covenant, then you will continue to live in the land. You'll be at peace in the land. You'll be protected from foreign invaders. The land will be fruitful. You will prosper in the land. The the blessings are, are built around a good experience of living in this place. 
And equally the curses. The curses are about the land not working for you. Your crops will fail. You'll experience plagues and famines. Um, you will lose the you'll, you'll begin to suffer invasions and pressure from other nations. And ultimately, if you continue to um, turn your back on God, if you continue to be unfaithful and worship other gods, if you don't keep the covenant, you will lose the land. You will end up in exile. Your land will be destroyed. Okay? So, blessings and curses. So, um, that's Deuteronomy. 16 prophetic books. What are they talking about? Or when are they talking? Okay? When are they, these 16 prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, when are they speaking? Let, well, here's a timeline. Old Testament timeline. Um, 2000 BC, roughly, we have Abraham. Okay? How many of uh, the Old Testament prophets have spoken by then? Zip, that's right. Uh, Joshua, so when they enter the land, we had much prophetic... We have had lots of prophetic... Moses was the greatest Old Testament prophet. But in terms of the, the writing prophets, the prophets we can read in our Old Testaments, how many? None. David? None. So when were they writing? All 16 wrote in these 300 years, this 300-year period. Nothing recorded, and then all of a sudden, condensed into that period in the 2,000-year history of Israel. Why? Well, what was going on then? Exile. Okay, but, so this is the northern kingdom, Israel. So two of them, Amos and Hosea, are, are speaking about the fall of the northern kingdom. The other 14 are speaking about the fall of the southern kingdom. So what do you think the prophets are about? What's the situation they're writing to or speaking into? It's this people is trying to work out what's going on to them. They thought they were God's people. He seems to have abandoned them. They thought he would always he was on their side. He would always look after them. They've got all these questions because they've forgotten the book of Deuteronomy. So what are the prophets doing? They're reminding they're pointing out that everything that's happening to them was kind of built into the deal from the start. This isn't a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's a massive surprise to the people sitting in exile, thinking, what's going on? This isn't, this isn't according to the plan. It absolutely is. The trouble is you've forgotten the plan. This is what the Old Testament prophets are about. These are the questions they are answering. Why, why is this happening to us? This is, this is the subject, the topic of the Old Testament prophets. You'd think the people in Israel would say, oh, of course, yeah, we turned our back on God. We were unfaithful. No wonder. No wonder we're in trouble. No wonder it's all gone wrong. No wonder we've been booted out of the land. Of course, God's kept his promises. He's done what he said. But no they, they, they were in denial, right? You can see in the, the way that the prophets speak. The prophets are arguing. They're saying, you're wrong. You believe that God will always protect you in the land. You believe that this is just a passing phase and soon things will be back to normal. No, you're wrong. This is God's judgment on you for failing to keep the covenant. Um, so... 
And that's what you see in Ezekiel. At least you see, that's what you see in the first half of Ezekiel, the first 23 chapters. So Ezekiel is a priest, he's a young priest, who is exiled with the first group to end up in Babylon. The first 10,000, the elite of Israel, who are taken by the Babylonians and end up south of Nineveh. And to begin with, he's just one of the exiles who's gone with them. And it seems that these, the elite in exile are saying to themselves, um, this is just a blip. Jerusalem will be fine. We'll, we'll soon return and life will carry on as normal because God won't allow us to be destroyed as a nation. And after five years of this, in 593 BC, God calls Ezekiel to start prophesying to the exiles in, in Babylon. And, and Ezekiel's message is, no, Jerusalem will be destroyed. You're wrong. Um, and it's, it's about judgment. That's what the first 23 chapters of Ezekiel are about. And five years later, in 588, well, the siege of Jerusalem starts in 588. After 18 months, Jerusalem is overrun by the Babylonians. It's utter, the walls are broken down, the temple's destroyed, and all the inhabitants are scattered to the four winds. And Ezekiel is proved correct. So, is that the end? Is that the end for God's people? Um, is the next question. <laughs> so, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry? Well, yeah. You do. It's what we're talking about, isn't yeah. it? Consequences. Okay. Consequences. Okay. You're distracting me. I'm just okay. So, is, is there a plan? Is there a plan now that they're in exile? Well, back to Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, is this all right? We're jumping all over the place. Let's go back to... Was even the what happens next after exile question addressed in Deuteronomy? I find the final few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy the most extraordinary chapters in the Old Testament. They are quite mind-blowing. So... uh, Moses does several things. He, he's laid out the, the, the guide, the handbook, the rules for being God's people. And then he renews the covenant. So he gets Israel to stand before God and promise that they will keep the covenant. This is the new generation. They're about to move into the land. They do this moving ceremony where <laughs> Moses asks them, will you keep the covenant? They say, we will. <laughs> Moses goes back to his tent and God shows him a vision of the far distant future and he shows him failure. It's extraordinary. Just as Moses is laying out the deal, encouraging Israel to keep to the covenant, warning about the blessings and curses, the consequences, committing the people to stick to the covenant, God shows him that it won't work. Now it's worth pausing and thinking about this for a second. I don't know about you, but I tend to see the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as plan A and plan B, as though God somehow got it wrong. 
You know, he, he, he came out with the, the, the covenant, the people of, of Israel, and he thought, this will be great. This will go really well. And then, you know, a few hundred years later, oh, my word, I wasn't expecting that. We're going to have to rip that up and come up with a completely different plan. And I think this undermines that idea And I think it's really important to understand, as well as the discontinuity between old and new, there's an awful lot of continuity. And we'll we'll look at this more tomorrow. But I particularly suggest that God's purpose for his people hasn't changed. What has changed is the means for achieving it. From the start, God has wanted a people who will be like him so that the world can see what he is like, so that the world can understand who Yahweh is by looking at his people and the way they relate horizontally, the way they are with one another, to use a Pauline phrase, love one another. Why love one another? Why be a community that lives differently from the world so that the world can see who God is and be drawn towards him? so that he can be glorified. And I would suggest that that purpose is absolutely continuous. And it's interesting, in, in the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, uh, when, when uh, the people in exile have this vision, and it's explained to them, it's not, there will be another people in the far distant future. No, the pronoun is you. This is what will happen to you in the distant future. You will come back to life. It's continued. These are your descendants. Uh, our ancestors are the people of Israel. Okay? It's not plan A and plan B. Sorry, that's a bit of a diversion. There was only one problem, only one flaw with God's original plan. And that problem was the human heart. The fundamental, the, the, the skeleton of the whole of the law was love God. Everything else was built on love God and be faithful to him. And the one thing that the people of Israel couldn't do was consistently love God and be faithful to him. There was nothing wrong with the law in a sense, except that it relied on the human heart. The willingness of people to love God and be faithful to him. And it's interesting to reflect, well, why did God have two goes at it? Why not just move to plan B from the start? That's a really rich question, which doesn't really get answered, but I'd suggest that the story of Israel and the calamity of Israel's failure and exile is a, is a perfect demonstration of the fundamental problem of being human, the nature of the human heart that turns away from God. Okay, so... Um, Is that it? No? So, again, what does Deuteronomy say about what will happen in exile? Well, it's not a surprise. God turns up at Moses' tent and shows him that Israel will fail. But then, even more astonishingly, uh, Moses looks even further into the future and sees what will happen next. Um, Let me read. This is Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 1. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart. Notice again the you. 
when you return, uh, return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. So even after exile, there will be restoration. But then jumping on a couple of verses, we have um, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. This is the one change from the old to the new that Moses sees. The one thing that God's going to do differently is circumcise their heart. What does that mean? Well, circumcision was the outward mark of what it meant, what it looked like to be a, a member of the people of God. You sliced off a foreskin and the job was done. But what we've learned is that, that it wasn't enough. The fundamental problem, you need a deeper, deeper cut than that. God needs to do something in the human heart. And once he does it, then that will be the mark of what it means to be a member of the people of God. It's someone who loves God and is faithful to him. And, and what Moses sees, having just seen Peter, is he sees there will come a time when God will do this. When God will act and will work in his people's hearts, and the result will be that it works. So that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Life, true life, will come when God works in our hearts and transforms us so that we love him, so that we're faithful to him. In fact, it's going to work so well that you won't need any of the external stuff. You won't need the, all the 600 laws and the temple and the sacrifices and all priesthood and all of that. Because God is it's going to work differently this time in, the, in the, that it's going to be from the inside out rather from, than from the outside in. Is that making sense? We're going rather fast. Okay. Are we okay? Okay, here we go. So, I need to catch up with myself. Here we go. So, Back to Ezekiel. The exiles are sitting in Babylon. It's 587, 586-ish. They, the news comes that Jerusalem has fallen and been destroyed. The walls, the temple have been destroyed. The inhabitants scattered. The truth sinks in. This annoying little prophet who's been saying, oh, this is God's judgment. Maybe he's right. Maybe it's all over. And so suddenly... The exiles start to have a different set of questions, a completely different set of questions, which is all about the future. Do we have a future? Is that the end of the nation of Israel? Has God abandoned us completely? What's going to happen next? And so Ezekiel, his tone massively changed. This is why the end of Ezekiel is so different from the start of Ezekiel. To begin with, He's warning them, and he's saying, this is God's judgment. As soon as judgment happens, his tone completely changes to one of encouragement and comfort and hope. Because exile has happened, judgment has happened, Jerusalem has fallen. And so what does he start to talk about? Well, he go, he's a good student of Deuteronomy. And again, he begins to remind them 
of all the stuff that God has said about this not being the end, that there will be a hope and a future for Israel. That's all right. You stay if you like. (laughs) And so Ezekiel 33 onwards are also remarkable. I think they're absolutely remarkable um, passages. They're messianic. Ezekiel starts talking about, and Ezekiel starts talking about a new covenant. No, the new covenant isn't just a, a New Testament idea. Ezekiel says there will be this new covenant of peace, and it will be administered by a prince like David. Extraordinary stuff. Um, the 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 rule that um, sorry no. The, there will be a prince like David who will rule forever. The new covenant of peace will be administered by a shepherd like David. Who do you think that might be? Um, and what about that problem? The problem that scuppered the, the, the original covenant. The problem of the human heart. Well, this is Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws because your heart will be different. Now where is he getting that idea from? Isn't that circumcision of the heart so that you may be faithful to me and live? In other words, this transformed heart will mean that people, as they live their lives, they will live out the law, even though it's no longer a written down law. And a lot of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and um, if you read Jeremiah 31, and Joel, for example, they all look to the future and they see a restored people with a transformed heart. The one thing they add in is that this time... It's they, they, they also say how it's going to happen. And it's going to happen through the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, he's going to work in people's hearts. He's going to transform the heart. He's going to fulfill the vision that Moses had um, sitting on the banks of the Jordan River. Okay? So... When Ezekiel looks into the future, he sees this new covenant community uh, transformed from the inside out, able to love God, be faithful to him. Who is he seeing? When he's prophesying this to encourage the exiles sitting um, in, in just south of Nineveh, who is he seeing? Who is he predicting? Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the Israel that returned to Jerusalem in 538? You know, uh, a few decades later. Is that them? Who's he talking about? Us. The people of the Spirit. The new covenant people. He is talking, to, he's encouraging the people in exile by saying God hasn't given up on Israel, but who he has in mind is us. Hope Community Church. And all the other communities of the new covenant around the world indwelt by the spirit 
whose hearts are being transformed so that they love God and are faithful to him. So they fulfill the requirements of the law without even knowing the law. Because it's from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And then in the midst of this section, uh, we have this, this vision, this illustration of the valley of the dry bones. What we're si- it's, a, it's a powerful vision, but it's a metaphor of, of skeletons uh, being covered in flesh and skin and coming to life and breath coming in. But what it's, talk- what's it, it's an illustration of what it's saying is uh, this transformation of human hearts is like skeletons coming to life. It's that dramatic. It's that big. It's that significant. That's, there's a paradox here. This invisible transformation in human hearts is going to result in a vast army. There are so many echoes of Jesus' words about tiny seeds and massive outcomes. You know, the, the heart of the, of, the, of the old covenant was loving God. Because they couldn't get that right, everything else went wrong. God's, God's spirit is going to make this, transform, this invisible transformation in the heart of his of, uh, believers. And as a result, everything's going to change from the inside out. Okay? So who is this? Who is this reanimated army with the breath of God in them? Who is this vast army that uh, the vision of which encouraged the people sitting on the on, in, in, by the Kibar Canal south of Nineveh? It's us. It's us. So this story, this this vision, the the Valley of the Dry Bones, is, is a, a prophecy. It's looking far into the future and seeing the church. You know, I have my doubts about Jeremiah 29, but there's no doubt about Ezekiel 37. This really is about us. But it's a description of what God is doing in us as believers. Okay? Oh, yeah. So, what happens on, in Acts 2, day of Pentecost? The day of the Spirit. Peter stands up. And he explains what's going on to the people in Jerusalem. How does he explain it? Well, he quotes an Old Testament prophet. He he quotes Joel, Joel 2, and says, look, this has been predicted from long ago. He could just as easily have used Ezekiel 36 and 37. We are the fulfillment of these visions and prophecies. Okay. Two objections, I think. Is it really us? Do we feel like a vast army? Are you sure you got this right, Bill? I mean, it's pretty complicated. Uh, Haven't you taken a wrong turn somewhere? Because we don't feel sometimes like a vast army, a vast, impressive army. So, are you sure? Is that right? And I think I would address... Have you got the last five minutes? Okay, okay. So, I think there are a couple of other things about Old Testament prophecy that it's worth bearing in mind. And the first is, the Old Testament prophets give us God's view, the way God looks at things, and particularly the way God looks at history. Okay, so here's the way we look at history. Uh, We see these events as very separate 
So for, for Ezekiel, there, were, there was stuff that was in his immediate future. The return of the exiles uh, to Jerusalem in 538, that was going to happen in the next couple of decades. The birth of the church, Acts 2, day of Pentecost, that's a few hundred years. The age to come, well, that's in our future. It's thousands of years for Ezekiel. And so we see these as completely unrelated, separate events. But imagine if each of these blue lines were discs. And instead of looking at them side on, you looked at them from that point of view. Um, That's the way God sees them, because God is outside time. And so he tends to see all sorts of different events as though they're happening simultaneously. Or at least I think that's what's going on, because the prophets are speaking God's word. They're speaking on behalf of God. And they do this funny thing where they collapse events which are actually hundreds of years apart. They collapse them and kind of jumble them up so that it's like they're happening simultaneously. So Ezekiel's viewpoint is like this. And you may notice in the, um, in the dry bones passage that simultaneously in the vision, Israel is coming up out of its grave and being restored, um, which I'm arguing is an event that's happening um, on the day of Pentecost, the day of the Spirit. But also, he's talking in the same, same sentences as returning to the land. Okay, so how come these seem to be happening at the same time? Well, because from God's point of view, they are happening simultaneously. He's outside time. Um, Now, this is something I'm going to come back to tomorrow, because what this tells us is that God is always doing the same stuff. We tend to separate these events from hundreds of years and see them as completely different things. If we look at it this way, what we see is the same patterns, the same activities of um, overcoming death and giving life happening all throughout history. God is always at work creating people in his own image, from Adam through to the church. Okay, And it's these continuous themes that it's worth paying attention to. But what that means is, for for us, trapped in time... We're in the now and the not yet. There's some of this stuff that we are experiencing and some of this stuff that we're not experiencing yet. I mean, to return to that idea of land, yes, the the exiles returned to the land in 538. But Paul says, or rather in Jesus' time, the Israelites were still saying, it feels like exile is still happening. Now, we're not an independent nation anymore. We've been dominated by first the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Seleucids, then the Romans. Um, We're we're not really our own people in our own land. When is exile going to come to an end? And even Paul, talking to the church, talks about being aliens here. You know, we're foreigners, we're strangers, we're just passing through. And so there's a sense of already and not yet when it comes to the land. And that's the same for us. We are this vast army. And yet there are so many times when it feels like we're not. But there's another thing, which is um, really absolutely final point. There are uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, and especially Daniel, are Old Testament prophets who are also, they also belong to a different genre, which is Jewish apocalyptic. For example, there are 65 uh, 
direct or indirect Ezekiel quotes in the New Testament. 65 times Ezekiel is quoted in the New Testament. How many of them are in Revelation? 48. Okay, so there's a lot of Ezekiel which is apocalyptic. If you don't understand the Jewish apocalyptic as a genre, don't worry, no one does. Um, But it's that wacky stuff. But one of, the, one of the key things that is worth, that I do know about um, of Jewish apocalyptic is what it does is it kind of shows us the heavenly perspective on earthly events. It kind of shows us what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenlies when earthly events and, and national power politics are playing out on earth. It shows us what's going on in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies. And I wonder whether that's also true about this vision of Um, the mighty army. How does the church look to us versus how does it look from God's perspective, from the heavenly perspective? And if that's true, if that is part of the explanation for why God sees a vast army and we don't, then whose view needs to change? What's the truth? What's reality? That's worth thinking about. You've been very patient We've covered an awful lot of ground, from the Torah to Revelation, uh, and you've probably got indigestion. Um, But we'll do a little bit more tomorrow.